Welcome back to the Bill podcast and to this second part of the special trilogy with former Met Police officer and real-life legend Kevin Holland. The gold dust continues as we discuss Kevin's work on the Aylesbury estate and how the Bill as a series helped with that work. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Was there one you, uh, what, you know, any of the actors you personally identified with when watching thinking he's really believable or I can identify with that guy or everyone when they join as Jim Carver yeah everybody then wants to be I'm going to refer to him as Jack from EastEnders because he's Jack from EastEnders uh, yeah oh yeah <laughs> it's the same I was watching I was watching the bill the other night I've been catching up on a few of the episodes especially the latter ones Ruby from EastEnders <laughs> yeah, yeah that's was in right. it yeah. she was a WPC in it a few years ago that's right and yeah. now she's running a nightclub in Walford <laughs> <laughs> it's like that Pauline Quirk. She was a suspect mum in one episode, and then she's got her own sitcom. She's done all right off the back of the bill, isn't she? Yeah. <laughs> so, I look at them as as because Jack is Jack. Do you know what I mean? So I I, I, I remember mates um, who went on to be Crime Squad officers, and you could see how the, the way that they dressed. The way that they swaggered and the doors open, the camera shots were brilliant. When the, when the DS with his with his couple of DCs were behind, it's a big job, Sarge. And the, the doors swing open. It's exactly the same doors. They've got the chicken wire in the toughened glass, and they've got the safety sign exactly the same as in the police. And the camera was down low, and it was like a belt up shot, and it was like, yeah, it was Gallagher. Was he? Was Gallagher a DS uh, or something? Uh, Galloway. Galloway. John Salthouse, yeah, he was the first DI, yeah, yeah. The DI, and he'd come through and he's got a DI, and there's just a couple of little one-liners, but it was that swift, we're in control, don't worry about it, please. Where's my cup of tea? And, you know, sending them a uniform off in different directions to do their work. <laughs> it was just, you could see the people whispering in their ears as they were acting. My, my sergeant would have done it like this. And he got really, right, let's give it a go. In an act. Do you know what I mean? They, they got that off. And I think that the small units and the breakaway, I remember one episode where literally it highlighted, there was somebody that either come back from maternity leave or come back from an injury. I forget the exact story. And to come back in, they were put on, on to a desk. It was either a missing person's desk or um, the, what was the old domestic violence desk. In those days, in the late 80s and early to mid 90s, there was literally a sergeant and usually a WPC coming back off of maternity leave. That was how it was, was sit in the CRD office to deal with nothing but all the domestic violence and all of the missing persons. And that would have been it. One sergeant and one, usually a detective coming back off of maternity or something like that, or, or coming back from injury if they've got a desk job. And, and, and the bill highlighted that, that it was literally, uh, you know, a pile of paperwork with 12 misspers and, and there was, you know, someone else had, had, had smacked his missus or something. And they've got to investigate all of this. And the work was sort of keep piling on. It's like, there's not enough of us to do this job to show the frailties in the system. And we could be sitting there at home in the, in the police section house or in the canteen at work watching it going, yeah, excuse the expression, the job was fucked when we joined. It was fucked when we was in it, it was fucked afterwards. There's always been those frailties, but the, the bill highlighted that. With regards to actual stories and characters, Red Hollis would, would like literally take a, a young kid from a family under his wing. Instead of the, the hard-nosed cop, it was very, very subtle guidance and advice and the telling off 
wouldn't sink until half an hour later. You know, like when your nan used to tell you off and you didn't realise you'd been told off until the following day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Reg had a way with just dropping information, you know, things like that. You can learn through acting. I mean, when I joined the police, I wanted to do what Mel Gibson was doing. I wanted to jump off balconies or off a roof, <laughs> saving people. Yeah, come on! Now, this is the way to go. But it, it was almost like that at times. Yeah, so you do listen and learn, but I think they took as much from us. When I later understood how TV worked, they had to take as much from the police as what police officers took from them. The police were always there first, and, and the bill was always an emulation of the police. And then for those of us who weren't in the police, and our first experience of the police was the bill, it actually introduced us. Well, I knew what the collator was. Yeah. I knew what the canteen culture was. Because I'd seen it. Yeah. I, I knew what locker room chat was about. So I wasn't alien to it. And none of us who watched the bill in the, in the 80s and joined in the 80s or 90s would have been alien to these things. No, because you... But it, it, it actually helped us. One, one of the, the, the really funny things I remember, um, it was, a, again, they were filming on one of the estates I was working on. Me, me and Colin, I'll never forget this. We were, I was concerned because I had two days at this one road junction, which is where the, the honey wagon and the tea wagon, the set the, the, the for filming is. But they needed us there because of the estate where it was. So two full days, me and my mate Colin. My mate Colin, he placed the uh, Lawrence Inquiry from day one at Hannibal House on the Elephant. Right, okay. So he'd done it five days a week, and I'd done it three days a week with him we, because it was a me and him shared the same beat, but he'd done half it, I'd done the other half. So we were there for that nine months, and then we had all these other things going on, and we're trying to keep a lid on all of our community issues as well. So anyway, I was working together this day, and was walking from the Elephant to where they were filming in Doddington Grove. And we go past this school, and it's got like 12-foot-high chicken wire fencing. There's the pavement, there's the playground, and there's all the kids up against the railing, calling your names and all the rest of it, because you're a police officer. So as we've walked along, the kids come over and a few of them are getting a bit brave. A few of them are just there being cheeky, as kids are. They get a little bit brave. And as, I've, as we've come along, I've gone, here, listen to this. I've says, yeah, now we've got the, um, the cameras in the lifts, in the stairwells. I think those drug dealers are going to go away. And I said it just loud enough for two or three of them to hear. And then I looked round and they've gone like this. I'm like, right, you didn't hear that, did you? You didn't hear anything, did you? You did not hear that the policeman said there's cameras in the lifts in all of those blocks of flats over there to catch the drug dealers, did you? No, PC Holland, no. And with that, they've gone off and told everybody, haven't they? <laughs> Brilliant. So, uh, the, the, that problem with those gangs for a few weeks in those locations stopped. It just went. And there was another time, again, I think I was, I can't, it wasn't a filming thing, because some of the filming... It would be a dedicated officer. You might be two months, but like three days here, two days there, for like, like snatch and things like that, that they were there for a few weeks. And you couldn't be abstracted all the time. You've got other duties to do. Yeah, I wasn't on relief. I was a community officer. I had my, my area. So I wasn't doing early, late and nights and in the cars. It was you know, just me. The, the, the way that we used to try to keep a lid on things. So I knew that I had a two-week project. It might have even been the Peckham Youth Project, which was a summer project where... You'd go as a non-uniformed police officer, but I'd be taking the kids to Quasar, you know, the laser place, or well, and this is the, like the gangs of Peckham and everything. So they, this was really, really good. Um, and especially when my missus turned up, that broke down barriers because she's black. 
So that broke down loads of barriers. You know, I didn't marry her. I married her because 30 years later, we're still brilliant together. I didn't marry her to break down barriers. But when people locally in Peckham and Walworth and Camberwell saw you with a black woman, as, and they knew me as a police officer, that really did break down barriers as well. Not that I'm a racist, I'm the complete opposite of, but their perception of police officers were completely changed just by that visual thing they could see. That was quite helpful, but one of the stories, I was talking to a mate of mine, he's a chief superintendent now, he should have retired, he's done about 31, 32 years, because he was on mounted. And I says to him, can you remember when such and such happened, um, and I was going to be away for two weeks. All I'd done was I put a requisition request in for the mounted branch for two days a week for half an hour to walk through my beat. So you had two police officers on horseback between 6.30 and 8 o'clock of a summer's evening, two days a week, when everyone can see them, and it calmed everything down. Following year, I've done it with helicopters. Wow. <laughs> we, we, this, is how, this is how in the police it works, right? had a mate who worked in the control room who shifted that job to go and work for Indian I-9, the helicopters. So put a phone request in. It says, right, if you're going on any jobs and you're flying over this location, on the way back, provided it's not out of the way and it doesn't encroach, can you just hover, do 30 seconds, and I'll give them a, a, literally a 10 square yard grid reference of where I wanted them to hover. Yeah, we got, they stopped doing it in the end. It was in the papers and all sorts. It wasn't just with me, we were all doing it. Right. We were hovering in drug dealers' back gardens and <laughs> blocks of flats looking straight at them. <laughs> apparently, apparently, I don't know if that actually is true and I don't know if that actually happened. I wasn't there, <laughs> but apparently it happened. <laughs> you might be able to do that nowadays. I don't think they'd be able to say that they've done it nowadays. One of my favourite elements of the bill from a storylining perspective is it occasionally... They'd have some red tape in the storyline where they say, well, it's not in the public interest. You know, you might they, they know who the villains are. They know what they've done, but they can't arrest them for political reasons or for public interest, which you'd always assume the public interest would be, well, we'd want them behind bars sort of thing. But I suppose that that was always something I, I enjoyed with the bill. Nobody liked Conway. He was the chief inspector, wasn't he? Once they once they leave inspector, they lose reality or touch with the base. Right. But they haven't quite made it to senior <laughs> management, but they think they have. <laughs> right. Yes. And, yeah. And people like me who had no aspiration at all for promotion, it was all about policing. Uh, people like me would remind them of this on a very regular occasion. <laughs> 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 you've got to. Haven't you? So, no, I, I know where you're coming from, especially when you, you've got the PCC, whisper, you know, the, the, the Police Crime Commissioner whispering in the Chief Superintendent's ear get on top of a particular problem because the MP is getting into his ear. And the reason the MP is, is because the person who backs the MP's campaign. So it's all gone round in this insidious little circle. Whereas some of us couldn't give two fucks about the politics behind it all. And the politicians get exactly the same as the members of the public. And that's why I think I ended up with a wall like this because politicians wanted to come for a walk with me. They wanted to know how we were successful. And that was because we didn't say, yes, sir, no, sir. We said, how are we going to get this done, sir? It's different. I promised I was going to give them a crime-free week. I had no choice but to deliver it or, or die trying. I had no choice because I'd committed publicly to do that, and you've got to see it through. So the governors had to come with me, with the chief inspectors. I mean, it worked in our favour as well. 
there, there was a point when, when you were home beat, you should only really do two or three years because you can get too close. Okay. Even without realizing it. Yeah. And also people who are in one role where they've got authority, not of rank, but authority within the community are more susceptible. And it's a fact to corruption. And I'm not talking about backhanders. I'm talking about that sort of behavior where the phone call to the MP, you know, getting things done, but it works the other way as well. So let's say for an example might be an imaginary story here <laughs> that a certain police officer might have been told that his three years is up and he's now got to look for another beat, but he doesn't want to move beats. He's got unfinished business. Yeah. So the mayor or the leader of the council or the MP might phone the chief superintendent and say, you've only been there for six months. You're only here for another six months. He's here for five years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? yeah. And, and the phone, and it might be a case of the chief superintendent then bites his tongue and says, let's give him another one year extension or not. And just to, so there was, a, it worked both ways. The police officer could also work that influence. Yeah, work, use that influence for the better, provided it's for the betterment of the community. I think that's a good thing. This is a, a famed story for me. Back in 1998, 1999, big thing with gang robberies, big thing. Mobile phones were getting nicked, big thing. Like they are today, but this was big. At the time, it was a new thing, so it was, it was big. So I used to put on um, a boxing show with the local boxing clubs. My, my chief superintendent's father-in-law ran a boxing club, and the first job he gave me when he joined our police station, he said, oh, go and meet this bloke and do what he says. Yes, sir. Off I go. I'm now, I, two, two days later, I turn, I turn out to be the vice chairman of the world's longest-running boxing club. The, the, the Lynn Athletic Club in Wells Way in Camberwell. It sits between the North Peckham Estate and the Aylesbury Estate in this big old, the Camberwell Baths. So I become the vice, and I start dragging kids in off the estates into the boxing. And we use that. So we put on, and then you get friendly with the mayor, you get friendly with, because you're the local policeman. So the mayor says, right, I, I want to do um, a charity boxing show for the, for the, for the mayor of Suffolk's common good cause this year. So, okay, Bill, so we'll put a, a charity boxing show on. So we do it the week before Christmas at the Elephant and Castle. We get 500 tickets printed. I'm in charge of the tickets because otherwise, in boxing, everything will get divvied up amongst people. And I wanted it all, which it's not a bad thing. These people contribute. But I wanted every penny to go to the charity. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go around all of the pubs and I'll get the pubs to sponsor the tickets so they can either have five 10 pound tickets or 10 five pound tickets. But either way, I want 50 quid out of them and I'll give them some tickets and they can give them to their locals. But I'll say that this pub sponsored this event. Well, we had about 15 or 20 pubs in SE 17 all around close to the Elephant Castle, didn't we? So I went to all these pubs and I had to do license and visits once every six months anyway with the licensing officer because they're on my beat. So I went around there and I, I told them how much they were going to give me. And then I, I also took the tickets back off of them and I gave the tickets to the kids in the street. Nice. And said, nice. that's from that pub. So all of a sudden, respect. Yeah, that link yeah. was forged. Older people, younger people helping. Bit more. So that was forged. 
But all the publicans were like, oi, where's my fucking tickets? You promised me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, get on the fucking phone of my, oh, I know the DS and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> Just like it would be on the bill. Yeah. And I'd say, now about that license application you wanted for New Year's Eve. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. And, and so if the police were going to bribe the publicans, yeah. I've got no problem with doing it, providing the beneficiary of that is the community that we all serve. Absolutely. You know, so things like that were really, really good. That, that was good side of policing because it was a, a little bit of a game, a little bit of a, there was a conversation here and a conversation there. It went on for six or seven weeks. And all of a sudden, you see 500 kids, gang members, gang members that were usually fighting each other's turf were there at a boxing arena. The first time they'd ever seen live boxing. And they were watching their peers from the local estates doing it. The gyms were full the following week. Full. I can only imagine because you're so passionate about this and so involved. I mean, how how on earth when you if you ever had downtime, did you did you actually rest your brain and rest for you? People like me don't, and that's what I've identified. Uh, We got married. Um, it took a long, long time for us to have children. So in that time, um, we we ploughed everything into our work. It was a distraction. We couldn't have kids. We we did in the end, but we couldn't have kids first seven years. So we put our whole life into our work without realizing what we were doing. So she was extremely successful in what she was doing. I was extremely successful, not as in promotional money, not that sort of success. My aim was to have a crime-free week. That's all I, was, I cared about. I wanted to walk around and not do any writing. I wanted, to, I wanted to have a fag and have a cup of tea on the roof, watching the kids playing basketball or football, or the old ladies planting flowers, or somebody picking up lit. I didn't want to be chasing people on bloody mopeds and drug dealers. Get rid of them out of my beat. And I used the community to do that. So I wanted an easy life. So the harder you work, the easier it gets. And in the end, I, I went for a year without arresting one person. Not one. Not one. The crime was at its lowest. We went a whole week without having any crimes reported. I'm not saying that didn't happen, but it was because of that level of community, intense community cooperation. We let them think we were everywhere. We created an omnipresence, but it was only me. But PC Holland spent five minutes at that school where 500 kids were going in, and then he'd spend five minutes at that school where they were all coming out. So nearly 1,000 kids have all seen PC Holland once that day. And then the following day, you switch it around. You do that school in the morning. So all of a sudden, you were here last night, and now you're here again today. But I had to get the sergeant to not keep abstracting me, to ring fence me and say, you are the permanent beat officer for that neighborhood. That, that was quite good because it then allowed me to, to develop plans. So I had some really good friends, some really good friends in particular, Lisa and Ray, friends of the wife and her boyfriend. We used to go out like all young couples in the 20s and early 30s, you know, go out for dinner and man each other's houses <laughs> when we were allowed to. Yeah, yeah. We said, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to plow 100% of our support and attention into you for this year. So Lisa got it. She got all, she had, she had three counsellors, three careers advisors, three close friends. The following year, we put all of our effort into my missus. And then the following year was into Ray, and then the following year was into me. But all the time we were building each other up. So I was talking about saying, you know, I want to communicate with people. I want to be able to get 
I need to get information out. So I've got these posters and I've got the newsletter I can put up in the library. And, and my mate race, and I said about, oh, every Thursday I've got the Southwark News. I could put a little column in there because people read that local, or the South London press. It's about getting information to people about community initiative. Let's just keep this going. And it was a 100% momentum for five or six years. And Ray come up to me and says, look, what you need to do is to tell all of the people the same thing at the same time. And it just like click. So I started writing. I learned how to write. And I started writing a newsletter. And I've, I've still got every single newsletter that I wrote. And it ended up, it's actually called, and I left this with the commissioner when I met him. And I, I, I broke into his office six months later to get it back. It's called the crap file. <laughs> the crime reduction advanced program. <laughs> the, the most significant things that I've done as a police officer, I've kept them. So the first one, after, after 9-11, the police needed to build a communication system. And it, it was an email message system. So counterterrorism and Westminster Council put some money together. And I was brought in. Um, to help develop this communication system. So I was taken off of the streets and into an office in Westminster. And we invented something called the Westminster email message system. People could subscribe and you could just say, right, I live in Westminster, or I live in this ward, and I'm interested in crimes around hotels. And on a daily basis, we would all the different types of crimes that are happening and send that preventative information to those people who wanted to receive that information. So basically, we invented Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. So yeah. I learned about communication from these newsletters. And because of the newsletters I was doing, and I saw the response from the mass, you know, three and a half, 3,600 newsletters all delivered at the same time within minutes of each other across, you know, this whole estate. And everybody, we'd done it on a Sunday evening when we knew the vast majority of people would be at home. Who's that at seven o'clock on a Sunday evening in, in the middle of January? Yeah. Peace the Holland again, isn't it? Well, it weren't. <laughs> They got a bit of paper with me all over it, but it was the security guards and the tenants associations delivering it for me, 30 of them, a block each. So they used to deliver these, um, these newsletters for me. So I got into communications very quickly. Now, this one, this report here, I'm not going to show you the ins and outs of it, but it was called the Aylesbury Community Concerned Life Skills Library. So me and the missus, me and the missus, Lisa and Ray, were down at Greenwich on a Sunday morning. <clears throat> so we've gone to the market, we've had breakfast down at Greenwich on the river, lovely it was, and there's a bookshop, and this bookshop has got all of these um, books in for one pound. So I go in, I say, how do you do that? And he says, we wait until it's the end of publisher's run, and we buy the end of stock, that Waterstones, that, and they sell them all for like a tenner for a, a box, and you might get 50 books in there, it's potluck, but it's literally, so... I went and bought a book called The Writer's Guide and I wrote a letter as a police officer to every single book publisher in the country. <laughs> and I asked them for end of stock books to build a life skills library for the people of the Aylesbury estate. And it was everything. We got the how-to books, how to, how to claim more benefits, how to set up a business. And there was so, and then there was dictionaries and there was encyclopedias and knowledge books. And this was the days before everyone had the internet. This was 1996, 1997. Yeah, it was only just starting to work out what email was. So we built this library and all the books that were left over, children's books, we then filled all of the, the local school libraries. 
And then we've done a press release and sent it out to all the papers. And the only, the only newspaper that never published it, right? But the following day, they started the Sun Schools for Books campaign, or Books for Schools campaign with Walker's Crisps and all that sort of stuff. My huge thanks to Kevin for such a fascinating conversation and for being so generous with his time. There's even more gold dust to come in part three of his podcast. You can follow the great man on Twitter at The Solar Shed and you can find his book A Pig in Shit on Amazon. Kevin is also a supporter for the Justice for Yvonne Fletcher campaign, which he talks about in part three. If you'd like to read more before then and support if you can, you can do so on crowdjustice.com. Here's the wonderful Ben Payton with the closing credits for our co-producer and executive producers of The Bill Podcast. If you'd like to add your name to this list, join the investigation now on patreon.com forward slash The Bill Podcast. Hello, this is Ben Payton and you have been listening to The Bill Podcast. Produced and presented by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Dan Evans, Sarah Kuyper, and Alex Mockler. Executive produced by Glenn Allen, Ben Ashmore, Daniel Christopher, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Paul Dunn, George Fairbrother, Stuart Gibbon, Erin Gordon, Luke Hegarty, Edward Kellett, James Ladane, Stuart and Jen Morris, Claire Norbury, Justin Pitt, Tom Sherrington, Patrick Stratford, Sarah Went, and Michael Weil. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and Misty Moon Events. If you're interested in reading about the making of the first three series of The Bill, signed copies of Oliver Crocker's book, Witness Statements, are available from devonfirebooks.com.